We've been going through the book of Acts in depth on Thursday nights. And um, we're in chapter 2, and we want to finish up the chapter, beginning in verse 40. It says, With many other words, he, that is Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now Peter has preached an incredible sermon. And incredible things happened when he had preached that sermon. In verse 41, it tells us that there were 3,000 people that came forward in the altar call that day. That is, 3,000 people came to know the Lord. Now that's, that's results. And it's very incredible to see that kind of fruit immediately when one message is given. What is most incredible is that Peter is the one giving it. Most people who would be starting a church or a religious organization would have fired Peter within two weeks of starting. He had all zeal and no knowledge. He was impetuous. He was quick to move. He made moves. They just happened to be the wrong ones usually. Here, Peter is saying something right. And not only is he saying something right, but 3,000 people respond to his message. Perhaps Peter kind of stood back thinking, Whoa, I didn't expect this. I thought maybe a few, but 3,000. And it says that they were baptized that day. Jesus told Peter that he would fail him. Peter, you're going to blow it. You're going to fail me. But when you are returned, Peter, strengthen your brethren. Peter has returned. Peter is himself strong. Peter has strengthened the brethren, the 120. And now he is strengthening Jerusalem as he is now filled with the Holy Spirit. 3,000 new baby Christians in one day. What would we do with them if it happened to us? Keep in mind, this is, this is from scratch. This is the first day of the early church. Pentecost. They heard and they saw the miraculous signs of Pentecost. They said, what does this mean? He says, I'll tell you what it means. And he preaches a beautiful sermon. Incidentally, there's three points with an introduction and a conclusion. It's just kind of set up beautifully. Again, it surprises us that it's Peter doing it. But 3,000 babies in the Lord are now in the hands of 120. Now, you want to talk about a discipleship ratio. You have a deficit there. What do you do with 3,000 people when you have no handbook of policies? No church government structure. No one's set up to really cover this whole thing. It's so chaotic and so refreshing. They didn't know 
the right thing to do. They couldn't get on the phone and talk to another church. This is it. They're the only ones around. They're learning on-the-job training. And what's beautiful to see is that because they only could trust the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit came through and He was trustworthy, and somehow it just worked, it gelled together, and these 3,000 people became strong and became little evangelists throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are turned toward Him. God is just looking for people to use, in other words. And Peter got in the way. And he just raised his hand and said, Lord, would you use me? And God said, yes, I will, Peter. And God decided to use Peter because Peter's heart was turned toward him, not because Peter was any dynamic, wonderful, perfect individual. Read the Gospels, you'll find that out. Peter got in the way of God's blessing and God's plan. And God used him. And I'm afraid there are an awful lot of people who will come up with the excuse, I just can't do it. I'm just not equipped. I just don't have what it takes to win people to the Lord or to become involved to any powerful degree. Well, that's just not true. And I think Peter should be your role model. And you should put Peter's testimony and Peter's life next to the Scripture, which is, happens to be my life verse. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Now that's Peter to a T. Peter was one of those foolish things of the world, and he sure confounded the wise. He confounds us as we read about it. And yet we look at Peter and we're encouraged. We look at his life and we go, huh, if God can use Peter, I'm in good shape. And you should think that way because it's true. You know, we kind of picture Peter with a little halo on and this wise individual. Well, he wasn't. It's just that Peter here is filled with the Holy Spirit and he decided to get in the way of God's blessing. God is using him. And he did not stop the flow of God through his own unbelief. We talk so often about revival. And I've heard even in certain commentaries, people look at these verses and think, this was revival. Well, excuse me, but that's not the truth. This wasn't revival because nothing had died. The only time you can have revival is when something is dying out. That's what the word revive means. This is, this is day one. This is the standard of the church. Now, I looked up revival in the dictionary last week and it said to restore to consciousness or life. The fact that we need revival, and don't get me wrong, we need it. It is only an indictment that the church is losing consciousness. In many cases, we become unconscious and listless. We're dying. The church, by and large, needs revival because the church is dying. But this wasn't a revival. And you do see revivals at many times during history, but they're very unlike the so-called revivals that you hear about or see today. I've seen people schedule revivals. It's the funniest thing to me to drive by a church on a street and say, Revival, Friday through Sunday from 7.30 to 9 o'clock. God didn't schedule those kinds of things. You just don't turn on revival and turn it off like a TV set. When revival breaks out, it is an uncontrollable fire of obedience that occurs 
among God's people first. And so here we see simply the Holy Spirit igniting His people as the church gets birthed on Pentecost. Very different from what we would call a revival today. In fact, Charles Finney said, Revival is nothing more than a new beginning of obedience to God. And as I said, it is needed. I found out that 185 years ago, according to statisticians then, 185 years ago, 25% of the world's population were so-called evangelical Christians. Believed in Jesus and were born again. 25%. 185 years ago. In 1970, it was 8%. In 1980, 4%. By the year 2000, it will be 2%. As the world is growing, but the number of Christians aren't growing with the world growth. Now, that's why Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on earth? I think the obvious answer is, no, He won't. By and large, He won't. There will still be the remnant. There will be those who believe, but it will be so diminished. And Jesus predicted that. Jesus predicted the growth of the church to be rapid, to be exciting, but to become corrupt as the fowls of the air, symbolic of evil, lodge within the branches of the church and it begins to putrefy. Like leaven that permeates a whole lump of dough and the whole thing is leaven, so the church will start to become leaven. And so you and I need to do two things in light of what we read here and of those facts. Number one, we need to pray for revival worldwide. I think it should be a prayer of ours weekly that we should ask God to stir up different segments of His body worldwide. And number two, to determine to become a part of that revival by asking God to revive our hearts first. It's always easy to point the finger and say they need reviving. Truth is, we need reviving. The quote I often share with you about Gypsy Smith, who was a revivalist. Somebody asked him, Gypsy, what's the secret of revival? He said, easy, go home, kneel on the floor, draw a chalk mark around you, get in the middle of that chalk mark and ask God to begin revival on the inside of that chalk line. When He answers your prayer, revival is on. In other words, God, revive my heart. Restore me to consciousness. Restore me to life. I found this I wanted to share with you. It says, A city full of churches, great preachers, lettered men, grand music, choirs and organs. If these all fail... What then? Good workers, eager, earnest, who labor hour by hour. But where, oh where, my brother, is God's almighty power? Refinement, education, they want the very best. Their plans and schemes are perfect. They give themselves no rest. They get the best of talent. They try their uttermost. But what they need, my brother, is God the Holy Ghost. I love that. That's really what we need. Getting back to simply saying, God, use my life. Begin revival in my heart. I want to lay down idolatry that gets in the way between myself and yourself and use me while I live this very temporary life on this planet. Use me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And again, Peter's life is a beautiful demonstration of that. The result of this whole occurrence that happened on Pentecost was joy. There seemed, you just can't read this without seeing joy and gladness surfacing 
in these people. There was a real effervescence about them. Look in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word. Don't you love that? They didn't grudgingly receive. They gladly received his word. And they were baptized. And then in verse 47, or verse 46, and so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In other words, joy, gladness, is a part of being saved. Jesus promised a joy that would come forth from our lives. A joy that he described as fullness of joy. I, before I became a Christian, I was scared of becoming a Christian because my perspective of most Christians is that they were very boring, very dull, very listless, and kind of just so somber and bummed out. Now, I was greatly mistaken, granted, but I saw some poor examples of Christianity, and I started judging Christ by some of the specimens of His. And I thought, goodness gracious, that's enough to keep me where I am and not want to seek the Lord any further. I didn't say it in those words, but I just thought that if I came to Jesus, I would, you know, have a lobotomy or something. I'd stop living. There's a gladness that always permeated the church whenever the presence of God was among them. And it wasn't something contrived. They didn't have to turn on a switch when they saw another Christian and, and put on a show. In fact, you can have fullness of joy even though things aren't panning out very well in your life. And when they're not panning out very well in your life, I think it's a greater testimony instead of just putting on a fake smile and jumping up and down. If it's real, fine. Many times it's not. And people think they have to do it for other Christians. But to simply say, well, you know, things are really kind of crummy around me, but I have the presence of the Lord and the joy of the Lord in my heart. That's a great testimony. And sometimes we think we have to turn it on when it's really not real. You know, there's an incredible transformation that takes place once people pull into the church parking lot or walk into the church door. They could have screamed at their wife that morning, kicked their kids several times, thrown the dog over the fence. But they get into the doors of the church and see the greeters or the ushers and all of a sudden this magical smile comes out. Hi, brother. Hi, how are you? Oh, blessed, blessed. Why do we do that? Because we think that we can't be human around other people. That's not Christian joy. You know what's worse than no fruit? Plastic fruit. I've seen certain fruit on people's table that looks so real only to find it's fake. You want to grab the thing and take a bite into it and you feel it's a little lighter than usual. It looks just like an apple. Wax. And I think it's distasteful for people to put on the Christian mask, the little plastic joy. It should be very real. And with these people, it certainly was very real. As you read the New Testament, the word rejoice comes up 72 times. And the word joy 60 times. And you know that it's often spoken of in times of great distress. When Paul the Apostle was put in the Roman jail, 
And he was writing to the Philippians and he said, guess what, you guys? I think I'm going to die here. I don't know if I'm going to live or die. If I live, great. If I die, I'll be with the Lord. But he kept saying, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Only an idiot would say that or someone in touch with Jesus Christ on a constant basis. And he was in touch with the Lord. And there was a great joy that pervaded the entire early church. Now, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of all times in the 1800s, had his own school. And he would teach ministers about how to preach the gospel. And in his book, Lectures to My Students, he says that when you speak of the things of the kingdom of God, that your face should light up and your eyes should shine. And he always made a point that there should be a a joy and an expectation, not contrived, but that we should realize that heaven and the kingdom of God is such a joyful thing to consider. And so he said in his deep English voice, let your face shine and your eyes light up. And he said, and when you speak of hell, your normal face would do. <laughs> Always love that. The day I finally asked Jesus to be my Lord, in San Jose, California, watching Billy Graham on television, when I finally, in my heart, said, Jesus Christ, come into my life. I was very confused at that moment, but I knew I wanted forgiveness. And so I prayed. And I said, take over my life. I've tried so many things. I've looked for joy. I've looked for happiness. Do something. I've tried everything and everyone but you. Now, Lord, I'm laying it down and I'm going to follow you. Lightning did not come out of heaven nor did God appear to me in the form of an angel. But I experienced as if a load had been lifted, a load of guilt off of my life. And the next couple days, as I was making my way back down to Southern California, I felt the need to share with my family and my friends what happened. As I traveled, I experienced a joy, uh, a weightlessness, only way I can describe it. A real joy like I'd never experienced before. I started making up. I didn't know any Christian songs at the time. I started making my own up. I hadn't been around Christians. All I knew is that I was happy and I was singing. And whatever happened, it happened. And I was happy. And I felt as if my sins were completely forgotten. And of course they were. I had been born again. The natural result of an encounter with Jesus Christ is that kind of a joy. Now, I think this is one of the reasons, incidentally, why many Christians don't experience the fullness of joy in the Lord, is that they kind of make a commitment to Jesus. They, they know they need Jesus. They raise their hand or they say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to make him the Lord of my life. But they take a little step instead of jumping in abandonment into the arms of the Lord. And they have enough religion to make them totally miserable. They have enough of Jesus to be miserable in the world, but they still have enough of the world inside to be miserable as a Christian. And there's this constant war and tension going on. This battle between the flesh and the spirit that's constantly going on. They're torn inside. Loyalty to Jesus Christ or loyalty to the world. Am I going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ or am I going to serve my own way? And because of that, there is a lack of joy. In our Constitution, we talk about 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you know, the pursuit of happiness has become the God in America. I want happiness. And then we define and describe happiness, then we pursue it. Happiness is this much income a year. Happiness is this kind of a lifestyle, this kind of a home, this kind of a car, these kind of friends, this place to live. And then we pursue happiness only to find that it's not there because happiness is a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus Christ. True joy is found only in Jesus Christ. Now, granted, those things produce a temporary Band-Aid kind of a happiness, but it's not long-lasting. But for the Christian who wants to experience fullness of joy, you've got to just let loose and cut loose of everything that's holding you back and in reckless abandonment fall into the arms of Jesus and say, I'm yours. And you will be able to have the same description as these early Christians. They gladly received the Word and they gladly ate their food with simplicity of heart. Now, Verses 40 through 47 are like a condensed photograph, a seed picture of the early church in action. It gives us kind of a format, a a standard by which we can measure every other church and every other church person, including ourselves. Because this is the first church. And the first of anything is always important, whether it's the first book although there might be different kinds of book that come after it, the very first of anything becomes the standard by which we compare everything subsequent to. Now, this is God's standard. This is the early church in action. I understand that because there's a crowd this size that we all have very different ideas, perhaps, of what the church is. In fact, when you mention church to most people, people are confused. They have to delineate the category. Which church is it? When you say I'm a Christian, people want to know what flavor of Christian you are. Are you chocolate or vanilla? Are you Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, Charismatic, Fundamentalist? What are you exactly? I need to have a category. It's very confusing to people. It's like 31 flavors. However, as most of you know, but just in case you don't, Church has nothing to do or very little to do with a place. Has a whole lot to do with what goes on inside any place with the people who occupy it. Uh, Although we say, I'm going to the church tonight. And what we mean is, I'm going to this place on Osuna Road designated as the church. We all know that in the New Testament, church means people, not a place. In Christianity, there are no holy places. There's no such thing as a special place to venerate or worship. There are only holy people. When Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew said, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word he used is ecclesia, which comes from two words. Ek, which means out from and kaleo, which means to call. So it simply means to call out from. And so when you attend a Bible study or a Sunday morning worship service or a kinship group or a prayer meeting, we have come together because we've been called out from that mess. 
that we've been delivered from. And we come, in a very real sense, to an island of Christianity. Now, we don't live around this all day long. And that's good. We wouldn't grow too much if it was just believers all around us. We need the mix of the island and going out into the mainland and being in contact with the world. But we come together, we're called out from the mess, from the storm, placed for a time in the island of Christianity, and we receive strength, encouragement, and challenging to go out and fight the good fight of faith. We're called out, and it means we're called to be different from them. Not just for an hour. We're called to be totally different all the time. We're called out from among them to live among them, but not to act like them. To live in a, a plane much higher than the plane that the rest of the world is living in. That's what the church means. I will call them out from the world. I will build my ecclesia, called out individuals. It really doesn't matter where we meet. And I was thinking today about this. I was thinking of the time, and a lot of you remember this, when there was no carpet in here, when this we didn't even have a stage, when there was no ceiling tile, and there was this big Rambo kind of a building, kind of green and black. And uh, you'd always have to wear blue jeans, because if you wore anything nice, it'd get soiled just walking in this place. And then I remembered farther back than that when we met in a theater at one time and you'd come in Sunday morning and you'd get gum all over your shoes. And you'd sit down and you'd walk out. You'd try to get up after the service and your feet would be glued to the floor because of the Coke that was on there. And most people would think that's an inconvenience and yet I found that you attract a quality of person under those circumstances. And while it's nice to have carpeting and chairs and land, uh, the, the times that you, you just kind of have an open garage, you keep out certain kinds of people that only want the best, but you attract people who don't really care what it's like where you meet. And really, those are the greatest people to have around. They really understand what the church is all about, that they're called out individuals, that it's not a building or an air conditioning system or plush carpet or pews but it's worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth and being called out from the world and being refreshed in His Word. I spoke to a pastor of a church actually here in town. Beautiful building. Sat down with him a couple years ago and he said, you know what? I really hate the fact that this is a very plush, wonderful building. Because oftentimes it attracts just certain kinds of people and that's all they think about what the church really is. They forget that we're called out pilgrims to be different from the world. At that time, we were, written, we were in kind of a shack. And he said, count your blessings, man. It's wonderful because the kind of people that attract that kind of a place, it's a whole different breed of person. Also keep in mind that when we speak of the church, and we don't always keep this in mind, that it includes all believers, not just usins, but people who are like us in many ways and yet very different from us. In the early church, there were barriers that kept people divided, kept people into groups. There were the Romans who hated the Greeks. There were the Greeks who thought the Romans were uncouth and uneducated. There were the slaves who hated the masters and the masters who disdained the slaves. The men really hated the women. The women had to hang around the men, otherwise they'd be killed. There was class divisions everywhere. You know what cured that? The church cured that. 
The church cured that. Paul said there's no male, female, Scythian, bond, or free. We're all one in Christ. He is our peace. He's broken down the wall of partition that separates us. And so you'd go to a first century church service and you'd say, you'd see a slave and his master in the same building. You'd see a Greek and a Roman. You'd see a husband and wife. You'd see all classes blended into one who realize now that there's a common glue between us. And that even though I'm a Greek and you're a Roman, I'm no better than you are. Even though I may be male and you may be female, I'm no better than you are. We're called out ones and it includes all believers. And there was a oneness that occurred and we see that beautifully spoken of here. In our own body, we have different backgrounds. In this church, different ethnic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, a different religious backgrounds. We have an interesting group of people here at this church. And it's kind of like a microcosm of the city. If we would take polls tonight, don't need to do it because we just know it's true by looking around of how many are Anglos, how many are Hispanics, how many have this income, that income, that education, you'd see it's just a big mix. Now the world tends to separate those groups, to polarize around the circumstances of those people and create little worlds, little groups. The church removes the walls and it includes people from all types of backgrounds and beliefs who find a commonness in Jesus Christ, as we're going to discuss here, a koinonia, a fellowship, one with another. Also, keep in mind that the church down the street or down the road that way or on the other side of the state and the other side of the mountains who believe in Jesus Christ are also our brothers and our sisters. And I think that that's a lesson Christians really need to have hammered home in their own hearts. Because we tend to develop an elitist attitude. That, yeah, you're, you're a Christian. And you can go to that church, but not like my church. Not like I am. And what's worse is so often you see two Christians pulling out their swords saying, unguard. And fighting one another. Having little scripture fights. Arguments. Bible ping pong. Slapping verses back in each other's face. Getting angry with one another. And you know, the enemy the whole time laughs at that. Satan just thinks it's a great. Because as long as you're busy fighting one another, he's off the hook. When you put your swords down and say, let's be brothers and let's get this guy, the enemy. That's when he's a little bit worried. As long as Christians fight one another and not the real enemy, Satan, he's getting off easy. It includes all believers, those who are called out. I realized something early on in my own ministry that the Lord has given me, and that is that there are as many different styles of worship as there are people. Now, as you know, I make a, a real difference between that which is orthodox and Christian and right and that which is cultic, that which is uh, non-Christian, that doesn't bear the historical Christian uh, 
thingamajig. I don't know what word I'm trying to think of, but thingamajig, that's really a good word. Try that next time when you can't think of a word and you have to think of something. A syndrome. A thingamajig. Now I lost my thought because I got goofy there. But there are different styles of worship. And I, I think that's wonderful. You know, I have heard certain Christians talk about this town and all the churches in it almost with a, with a, a disappointment. Like, God, there's so many churches. All we need is another church. What's wrong with that? When you see another church rather than another bar? Oh, there's another church. So many churches. Isn't that wonderful? Each church has its own personality. And you know, I'm really glad. I'm, I really am glad that all the people who are Christians in Albuquerque don't come here. I'm really, I praise the Lord for that. It'd be chaos. It'd be crazy. Because each one has its, his own desire of worship. Some really like it stiff. They like all hymns. They like low-key organ music. They feel, and that's all right. It really is all right. They feel like they need stained glass and they need the adornments of certain reminders to get them in the mood. And they really do feel like they haven't really entered into a meaningful worship without those reminders and those trappings of worship. Then there are other people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum. Unless it's very wild, very loud, very shouting. Everybody kind of makes a hoopla and it's very emotional. If it doesn't go on, the anointing wasn't present, and they just feel cheated. They haven't worshipped. And there's everything in between those two extremes. And I thank the Lord for raising them all up. I really do. Because it doesn't matter, really, as long as you're serving the Lord God of heaven and surrender to Jesus Christ... In that, it doesn't matter the variety of worship. What really matters is that you worship. That's the key issue. Now, well, you know, you don't worship like me. Well, at least I worship. Do you? Jesus said the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It will be honest, sincere, true worship. And the flavor of worship really matters little. And, and it really is ludicrous to think, you know, people speak of church unity in such a, a, a strange way, as if all of the Christians in Albuquerque ought to meet together in the pit. And one big giant... Oh, it's ridiculous. Unity is not uniformity. And let's not be so naive as to think we have to agree on every little point. I've said it before, if two people agree on everything, one of them didn't think it. That's just the, the nature of humanity. And it's okay to have variety. Some people are, you know, I like to stand up and shout with my hands up for an hour. Go for it. Some people think that's distasteful to me. I want to sit down. I want an organ. Great. Go for it. Just worship the Lord God and be committed to Him. It doesn't matter. Why make a big deal out of those things? And we recognize that this church has a style of Bible study and a style of worship that doesn't suit everybody. We don't apologize for it. We're not trying to please all the people all the time. Simply to do what God called us to do. And to please the Lord. What time is it? Oh, great. 
First thing we see about this church is it's a growing church. It says that 3,000 souls were added in. Now, I want to show you something. I want to show you a little pattern all the way through the book of Acts. Turn over to chapter 4. It says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. In just a couple chapters, in just a whether it's a few days or a few weeks or a few months, 5,000 new people are added to the Lord. Now again, imagine the kind of predicament that the early church is in. If you were to put it in sort of a modern-day Dwight L. Moody setting where the altar call actually originated from. And if you can picture Peter giving a sermon saying, now I wonder how many out there in Jerusalem in the temple in the court of the Gentiles, would like to say right now, Peter, I want to know Jesus. Raise up your hand. 5,000 hands go up. Oh, goodness gracious. Get the counseling room ready. We don't have enough Bibles back there. Now what you're going to see is that growth numerically in a church is very normal. Every time in the book of Acts, God was at work in a church, it grew like crazy. Turn over to chapter 5. Verse 12, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of them dared join themselves, join them, but the people esteemed them highly. This is after Ananias and Sapphira actually were uh, killed. They died. They fell down and died. And it says, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. first couple chapters, they said 3,000, 5,000. They stopped counting now. Just gobs of them. Multitudes. Look at chapter 6. In verse 7, it says, And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. In chapter 8, in verse 4, it says, Therefore those who were scattered went of Everywhere preaching the word, Philip went down to Samaria, preached Christ to them, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Look at uh, chapter 9. In verse 31 it tells us, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Chapter 11, verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And one more, chapter 16. Verse 5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Every time God was at work, building his church, like Jesus said he would do, there was numeric growth. Now, again, numeric growth is not always the sign of the hand of God upon something. Sun Young Moon saw tremendous growth in his organization. Many of the famous cults and occultic groups show people growing and show an exponential growth in membership. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's of God, but when something is breathed into by God, and God is doing a work and He's building His church, there will be growth. Now, I've heard people say, 
as almost an excuse. Well, we don't have quantity in our church, but we have quality. Well, that's great, but you know what? If you have quality, you're going to have quantity. You know, it's like Colonel Sanders. We do chicken right. And when you do something right and you continually do it right according to God's plan, you're going to have a growth there. And notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 47, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, I've had people come and they say, well, how long have you been in Albuquerque? We tell them. Well, how'd you start the church? We tell them. How many people you got? We tell them. They go, that's phenomenal. No, it's not. It's normal. There's nothing phenomenal. There's no phenomenal, wonderful vessel. I'm not phenomenal. There's nothing extraordinary according to the New Testament. If you match what has happened here according to the New Testament, it's just like, well, it's just average. What is abnormal is when over a long period of time you don't see growth. I say then you're not doing something right. Because as I read the New Testament, there's always, as the presence of God is known, as the Word of God is being taught, as the priorities are being kept, and we're going to see those in just a minute, as they devote themselves to those priorities, there's always going to be God who's going to say, I'm going to add to that. Because I know that's a place where somebody's going to be fed, taught, edified. The Lord will add daily those who are being saved. Now look at... Uh, um, Oh, we already looked at verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They kept their priorities. Unfortunately, the church has over the years gone into the church building business. We have forgotten about verse 47, that it's God's business to add people to the church. The church has thought that it's the church's business to add people to the church. And so we come up with programs, and seminars, and PR specialists to bring people in. And it's the most frustrating, nagging kind of a way to do things. You can always get people. You can do the right advertising, the right kind of thing. Uh, oh, it's a mess. There are PR specialists who are trained if you bring them in and you pay them a certain amount, no joke, they will guarantee by the end of their stay and their series of meetings to have membership increased to a certain capacity and tithing money increased for a certain capacity. They guarantee it in advance. Sign a contract. We've gone into the business of church building. There are seminars on church growth, how to get a large church. I've read through some of the stuff, never been impressed. Never been impressed. Because I find that the best church growth seminar is between verses 40 and 47. They kept their priorities. What were their priorities? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's teaching the word of God, fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Boy, that's easy. There are people who say, oh, you can't build your church, God. you got to go through a committee first. The committee will decide how you will build your church. And whatever the Holy Spirit has up his sleeve, we have to approve it first. You just can't pass anything, Lord, without a majority vote. 
But God desires to build His flock. And when the church becomes what God intended the church to become, God will add to the church daily those who are being saved. And all it takes is getting back to basics. Just the joy of loving Jesus. Becoming a Christian. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' doctrine. Fellowship. The breaking of bread and prayers. And and God will do it. Become what God wants me to be. God wants all of us individually to become strengthened through the study of the Word, through your daily devotional life. He wants you to become so strengthened that you become a magnet drawing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to get condemning on this, but ask yourself this question. How long has it been since you've led somebody to Jesus? Oh, maybe a week. Maybe a month. Maybe never. When is the last time you invited someone to at least listen to the Word of God? Or brought that person to a church service to be subjected to the Gospel? Or is it only, I need to get strengthened, I need to get fed, I need to go to church? Or do you become like the early church, strengthened so that you might go out and become a part? Because, yes, the Lord added daily. How did He do it? Well, He anointed men and women to preach the Gospel, to evangelize Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the earth. And God used their words. God used Peter's and James and Aquila and Priscilla and Paul to build his church. You know what I also love? Is that the early church never needed to be instructed on how to do it. Never had to have how to evangelize courses. Those aren't bad. I don't want to knock them. I don't want you to think, this guy's just against everything. Against committees, against evangelism classes. No. You know what? I'm not against them. I just don't want them to take the place of God, the Holy Spirit. I don't want them to take the place of an abandonment to Jesus Christ. I'll guarantee you, try it. Just surrender yourself totally to Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord to fill you with His Spirit. And then plop yourself out in the world and say, God, use me. And, you know, open your mouth. You'll be amazed at what God can do with that mouth after it's surrendered to Him. It becomes a wonderful thing. But they never had to be taught to do it. They just experienced the Lord and they told unbelievers all about who Jesus was. That He rose from the dead. That He's real. That you can know Him. God did a beautiful work. This church was a growing church. Secondly, it was a committed church. It was committed to a priority list. We already read those priorities in verse 42, those several things. First of all, the apostles' doctrine. Now it says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Let me read that to you in the Amplified Version. And they steadfastly persevered, devoting themselves constantly to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. I think at the heart of every work of God, and for that matter, at the heart of every great revival in history, if you'd study it out, you'd find a recommittal to those four priorities with studying the Bible top of the list. In every great revival, bar none, there's always a recommittal to the basic things of Christianity. And they happen to be those four things. Charles Spurgeon, again, once said, the great religious excite, or that great religious excitements have occurred apart from the gospel truth, we admit. 
but anything which we as believers in Christ would call genuine revival has always been attended with clear evangelical instruction upon the cardinal points of truth. And these four things become like the master report card, the master sheet. Whenever you're a teacher in a class, at least when I grew up, they had a a master sheet with all the answers on it. You take a test and turn in your paper, and she just kind of matches it up with the sheet. That's the standard. The master answer sheet is the standard. These four things become the standard of any revival, of any personal revival, of any church. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. So number one on the list, you could put nurture. Their first priority was nurturing through the Word of God. They persevered and steadfastly, continually gave themselves over to the apostles' teaching, as the New International Version puts it. The apostles' doctrine or instruction given by the apostles. It tops the list and it always topped the list as the church progressed. They never lost that priority. The Word of God was always top priority. And there even came a time in the church when there was a temptation to move away from this priority and to get involved in other things. The church began to grow, it says in Acts chapter 6. As the church began to grow, more people came into the church, more people complained. The Jews and the Hebrew, or the Hebrews and the Greek ladies weren't getting together, the widows, and they complained and they got mad at the apostles. You don't run things right around here. You gotta do something. And they said, it is not fitting that we, the apostles, the elders, would leave the teaching of the Word of God just to serve tables. But you choose among yourselves seven men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, good report, and we'll, we will set them over this matter. And that pleased the whole multitude. They chose seven of them, and it says the Word of God increased and was multiplied. There was a temptation to move away from the priorities. They were in the Word, they were in prayer, they were preparing to feed the people the Word of God, and they came and said, hey man, I don't know what you're doing all day long, but we need you to, to get busy on this thing and do something around here. There's an argument going on. Paul says, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to leave the Word of God and serve tables. Now why did they say that? Because they're not, they thought they were better than that, that they were better than everybody else? No. They just knew what they were called to do. That if they left the Word of God and started being involved in stuff that anybody else could do, that men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that they would soon leave this priority and the nurturing of the church would go downward and Christians wouldn't be strong. You see, the church is in many ways a training center to equip people in the Scriptures so that the church can do the work of the ministry, not so the pastor can do the work of the ministry. It says that in Ephesians chapter 4. To equip the believer to do the work of the ministry. You are called in the ministry. In some capacity. And the job of the pastor teacher is to equip the flock so that they'll go out and do the work of the ministry. Isn't that wonderful? Layman's liberation. God says, train them, turn them loose. Nurture in the early church. Unfortunately, Good old Bible study has fallen on rocky soil lately. 
And they, I, I hear people on the radio, I hear people from the pulpit kind of talk about Bible study in a, in a backhanded kind of a way. Oh, you know, some churches are really into Bible study, but, you know, just really dead when it comes to worship. And in many ways that's true, but in many ways the church has started to worship worship. We've worshipped it. We've tried to work ourselves into an atmosphere of experience that if we don't have it, oh, missed it tonight. Didn't really have that feeling of worship. And we'd start to bow down at the altar of worship rather than at the altar of Jesus Christ. And people think, oh, you know, just the Word, you know, is kind of dead. You have no life unless you have the Word. And you know what? If you don't love the Word, you don't love the Lord. David said, oh, how I love thee. And then he said, oh, how I love thy law, O God. And it was part and parcel of loving the Lord, was loving His commandments and His Word and nurturing and soaking upon the Scriptures. And a Christian that takes the priority of the Word of God and puts it second, third, or down there somewhere. It's not really God's order. First priority was the teaching of the Word of God. And that's why I think every pastor of a church, any church should be a pastor-teacher. I had a, a beautiful man in my life one time named Dr. Nat Van Cleve. He taught a class that I took. And he was telling us one evening of the importance of studying the Bible and staying in the Word and in prayer to teach, to be prepared to teach, not just to go up in the pulpit and flap our gums. And he said, if you go into the pulpit unprepared, and you speak to a hundred people for one hour, you just wasted a hundred hours of God's time. And God will hold you accountable. So you better go in there after much study and after much prayer, trusting on the Lord, but giving priority to nurturing the church through the Word of God. J. Vernon McGee, who has since gone to be with the Lord, came to this town one time, did a Moody Bible conference, and I got to interview him at a local radio station. And he has spent so much of his life, he had spent so much of his life teaching the Bible. You ever heard of J. Vernon McGee? Raise your hand. Okay. Great. He was like 83 when he came to this church. And I said, Dr. McGee, why is it then, since he was kind of hammering on this point, that a lot of churches don't teach the Bible? Don't teach expositionally through the whole Bible, the Word of God. And he said, because some preachers are lazy. That's how he talked. He said it takes so much time to go through it. It consumes a person's time. And yet it was always the priority of the apostles in the early church that they would spend time in the Lord in word and in prayer. And notice that it's the apostles teaching, not preaching. You know there's a time for preaching and a time for teaching. And that usually preaching is to unbelievers and teaching is to believers. They had already been preached at. They had a sermon. See that in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches a beautiful sermon. Now that they're preached to, they're saved. Now they need to get taught. The church spends so much time evangelizing the evangelized. Preaching to people who accepted Jesus a long time ago. And instead of just saying you need to love more. You need to witness more. You need to do this more. You need to do that more. It's so frustrating because the average church person is saying, I'd love to. Show me. Teach me how. 
Give me tools to do it. And the Word of God, when you teach it, feeds sheep, grows them up, makes them strong. And they go out and do the work of the ministry, the equipping of the saints. Preaching had taken place, and now it's the time for teaching the Word of God here. So, evaluate yourself on the report card. Is the Bible important to you? Do you bring your Bible to church? Do you read it daily? Do you pray that you might apply its principles? And then it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. We might call this community, for that's what the word koinonia in Greek means. Koinonia means fellowship. Which has been a word that has been loosely tossed around for many years. It's interesting that there's not mention of coffee and donuts in this verse. They had koinonia, which means all things in common. It means common, it means communal, it means together, it means oneness. It can mean to share with someone in something. Or to share something with someone, like a meal, I'll share it with you. Or it could mean to share in something with someone, like an activity. It has very many meanings. It means a oneness, an openness, a communal. They had all things in common, the Scripture says in verse 44. That's what it means to have fellowship. Notice, everyone was involved. Look again at verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. One thing about koinonia, it's never done alone. You can't have fellowship by yourself. I mean, it just stands to reason. You have to have another person to share something with. That's the whole meaning of koinonia. You can't do it alone. You can't fellowship with a television set. With a radio broadcast. And just in case there may be some very well-meaning, but not tuned-in believers who think, I just kind of go to a lot of churches, and just kind of hang out when I want to, but I just kind of go off by myself and hang out with God in the wilderness, and I'm really not a part of anything. I just kind of, I'm detached. You need to be together, and I think you need to be committed, devoted, steadfastly to fellowship, which means a consistent, constant lifestyle of fellowship, so you can build relationships with people. There can be a warmth that you give off to them, and they give off to you, and that takes a period of time. Fellowship isn't, oh, there's a big shindig happening over at this place, this church tonight, I'll go to that, and then there's a new concert over there that week, I'll go to that one. It's a continual steadfast commitment to a group of people, I believe. And the early church devoted themselves to that. There was a group of people meeting one time, and a group of businessmen, there was a minister in the group, and one of the businessmen out loud said, Hey, preacher! Do you have to join a church to go to heaven? He said, no. The businessman smiled and patted the preacher on the back for being so open-minded. Very good, very good. The preacher said, but why would you want to go to heaven like that? Why would you want to go to heaven like that? When you can go with the fellowship of the saints 
and says in first john chapter 3 verse 14 by this we know we pass from death into life that we love the brethren how do i know i'm a christian that i abide well I, one of the evidences i love to be around other believers other christians it's there's a warmth given off there's a fellowship we're sharing in common i love to be with the body of christ i love to be with god's people i know that i pass from death unto life because i love the brethren. Koinonia, all things in common. And also notice, we'll close with this, that there's a two-fold structure to this fellowship. It says that they met in the temple, and it says they met from house to house. In verse 46, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness, and simplicity of heart. In other words, you couldn't just have five, eight, sixteen thousand people in a home. Got to have a big living room for that size. And so what they did, and they believe most scholars that between chapters two and chapters five, chapter six, there was about twenty-five thousand believers in one local church in Jerusalem. That's that's growth. That's amazing. 25,000. Now, big question comes. How could they experience this kind of warmth and koinonia? Uh, this is a question I get thrown at me. Sorry, church is just too big, can't have fellowship. Well, 25,000 people in Jerusalem, and they had it. How'd they do it? Because they had a twofold structure. Number one, they met in the temple. It's the only place you could get everybody together, and there was an experience of excitement as they taught the people in the temple. But then they had to break up in homes and have not only public fellowship, but domestic fellowship, intimate fellowship. They'd break it up in small groups from house to house. They'd have communion. They'd have a time of sharing together, a time of eating meals and so forth. But they says they had all things in common. You know how they did it? They did it in small groups. You can have intimate fellowship. I don't care how big the church is. And I understand, I really do understand the need for intimate fellowship. That's why we place a high premium on kinship groups. In fact, if somebody ever wants to get involved in ministry, if they're not involved in kinships, I don't even consider them a candidate. It needs to be part of that twofold structure, involved in a small group and in a large group. Large group exciting, but if that's it, you miss a whole dynamic of the church. You really do. There's a large church in Southern California, about eight, ten thousand folks. A couple just came to town, went to this church, found out that there was a home fellowship group in their area, found the leader's name, made a phone call, got involved a few times. A few weeks after they had moved to this place, her husband got in an accident in a car. She was beside herself. Now, what do you do in a time like that? Well, if you're not plugged into a home fellowship, you know, the first thing to do if you're a Christian is i got to call the church. i got to get the pastor. Which in some large churches, depending on his schedule, could take days. Just depends. And the person could be never available. This couple called the home fellowship leader. Within a couple hours, they had 60 people praying simultaneously. And they had meals prepared for the next few days. 
That couldn't happen unless they broke up in small groups. Needs, interpersonal needs, really aren't met just through public feedings like this. And if all that we do is come to a public feeding, if that's all this is all about, just a public assembly, then let's not call it the church, the body of Christ. Let's call it the brain. Let's call it school. That a church demands public and domestic breaking up in homes. Ask yourself now, second question as you close. When it comes to involvement, are you a spectator or a participant? Do you watch the professionals on stage sing and speak? Is that church to you? Or are you involved with another group of people praying, breaking bread from house to house, enjoying koinonia, a oneness, a commonness with another person? That's the standard by which we measure everything else. The Word of God. And then fellowship. Breaking of bread and prayers. There's a book by a guy named Howard Snyder called The Trouble with Wineskins, all about church and church uh, structure and so forth. And he said, I think you'll agree, most of today's methods are too big, too slow, too organized too inflexible, too expensive, and too professional ever to be truly dynamic in a fast-paced technological society. If the contemporary church would shake loose from plant and program, from institutionalism and inflexibility, and would return to the dynamic of the early church, it must seriously and self-consciously build its ministry around small group as a basic structure. First time we ever had a Sunday morning service, we handed out sheets that described home fellowship, kinships, and the need to get involved. He goes on to say, When a person is drawn into a little circle devoted to prayer and to deep sharing of spiritual resources, he is well aware that he is welcomed for his own sake, since the small group has no budget, no officers concerned with the success of their administration, and nothing to promote. It's a family. It's a family. And I strongly... I'll use a word that Paul used. Therefore, brethren, I exhort, I plead, I beg that you would become involved in meeting in the temple courts for a large feeding and be involved from house to house. Lock in to a small group. And then there can be a natural division of that group. Start out with 10 people, grows to 20 people, you split it right down the middle, you start with a new group. And it grows by division, not multiplication. You come to a small group and after a while you'll meet a group of people who don't have it together like you thought they did the first night you came to that meeting. You hear them say, I need prayer for this. You think, wow, that guy needed, needs prayer? And he has the same problem I have. Well, I need prayer for that too. And you share it. And after a while, you develop an openness. And you find that there's people there who love you for who you are, not because of what you do. And there's a security that's developed in that. And, you know, that's so important. One of the most powerful psalms written by David says, He sets uh, those that are abandoned. Let me have it. It's right here. 
He sets the solitary in families. Book of Psalm. He sets the solitary in families. And some of you are solitary Christians. You're not in a family. A group of people around you. I'm not saying you have to be in our kinship. You might have your own group. You might informally get together with people in the office or other ladies in the neighborhood or people for certain types of activities, but you formed a oneness and openness in your building relationship. It's absolutely necessary to mature Christian growth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to koinonia, in the large group and in the small group, to breaking bread, the love feast and communion, and in prayers. There was an openness, there was a commonness, and you added to the church daily. Nobody had to sweat the budget, the attendance. You just did it. And so, Father, we want to just take our hands off of your ministry and let you build it. Let you add. And we just want to get busy back to the basics, being a Christian steadfastly committed to priorities. I pray that you will build within this body of believers a love for the church, a love for your word, a love for prayer, a oneness. The government father of the world, the government of this church, we place on your shoulders. In Jesus' name, amen.